Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The last thing the White House, look, I'm telling you, they're never going to say, they're never going to say, I surrender. They're just never going to do it because they can't. So they're going to keep the story going and they'll put, they'll pressure people not to talk. And it won't matter that people talk. Look, there are other people. There's a, there's a community in the pipeline business. They know what happened. And that was Pulitzer Prize investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, renowned for exposing the My Lai massacre and the secret U.S. bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War, the CIA's program of domestic spying, and torture at Abu Ghraib in Iraq. But currently, the silence of the corporate media towards Hirsch as he reports on, yes, Exactly how the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipeline is deafening. Here to provide decisive insight into all of that in our Arts Express Corporate Media Watch episode this week, here is deep dive political analyst, Pacifica host, and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And plenty to talk about. Russia's making money selling gas and Germany's making money buying cheap gas. Everybody's happy in the United States, except the United States, because the United States then can't convince Germany that Russia's going to attack them because they ain't going. They know they ain't going to attack them because they everybody's eating. Germany's eating. Russia's eating. Everybody's eating. And the black community, you know, what we, we would say they both eating. Ain't nothing happening. Well, uh, last September, I believe it was the 22nd, a mysterious thing happened. That pipeline that ran between Germany and Russia blew up. Somebody blew it up. It was $11.5 billion that Russia and Germany had put in together for that pipeline, and that was going to cement the ties between Russia and Germany, and it just mysteriously blew up. And everybody knew the U.S. did it because um, right after it happened, Secretary of State Tony Blinken came out and said, you know, it's a great opportunity. And um, everybody was like, what do you mean? That's terrible. So, So Seymour Hirsch puts out an article. Here's the article. How America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. The New York Times called it a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. So what happens? Uh, Seymour Hirsch goes on to say that he had some kind of a, um, a leak. And this leak gave him everything. He, he was told what, how they did it the divers they used. He went into an intricate detail, right? He talks about where the divers were. were. He talks about um, how it was done, right? And he goes on to say, I'll just read one paragraph. Last June, last June, the Navy divers operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Balt Ops 22 planted the remotely triggered explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines, according to a source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. He goes on to talk about the meetings and here's what he says. Joe Biden. Victoria Newland, uh, Undersecretary of State. Um, Joe Biden's assist, uh, uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and uh, Jake Sullivan, and William Burns, who is the head of the CIA, they all got together and they talked about blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline complex. Now, they discussed it. In their discussion, one of the things that was came up was it has to be a secret. It has to be covert because it's an act of war, right? Okay, it says, over the next several meetings, so apparently they had meetings, the pipeline debated options for an attack. The Navy proposed using a newly commissioned submarine to assault the pipeline directly. The Air Force discussed dropping bombs with delayed fuse that could set off remotely. The CIA argued that whatever was done, it would have to be covert. Everyone involved understood the stakes. This is not kitty stuff, the source said. If the attack were traceable to the United States, it's an act of war. So President Biden and his assistants, Victoria Nuland, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, got together and they said, let's blow up Germany's pipeline. However, we got to be slick because it's an act of war. That is very important. In fact, I would argue that's critical. And here's why. Because only Congress can authorize an act of war. 
Only Congress can authorize an act of war constitutionally. So what they did was this. They they acknowledged that if we do this, it would be a constitutional violation because it's an act of war. So we got to be undercover. In other words, they knew that they were committing a crime. So they said, we got to be slick because what we get ready to do is illegal. That, my friend, should be enough to put you under the jail. What Joe Biden and his crew, crew did was knowingly committed an act of war against Germany, which is one of our principal allies, knowingly did it, according to Seymour Hirsch. Now, you can say, what well, does Seymour Hirsch know? He's never missed on a story. The man's 86 years old. He's broken some of the biggest stories in the world. He has, and he is known for having deep contacts in the Pentagon. And this story goes into intricate detail. And guess what? He says CIA William Bur- Director William, William Burns was involved. Burns hasn't said a word. He hasn't come out and said no. Uh, right now, Sweden is in the uh, is in a, is in the process of doing an investigation. They asked Sweden, Sweden, what, what do you have to tell us about these new allegations? No, no comment. What does that tell you? Let me ask you this: If I said to you, "Hey man, did you rob a bank?" Would you say no comment? You'd say, "No, I didn't rob a bank." What happens if you, if I say to you, hey, man, did you rob a bank? Oh, no comment. You robbed the bank. We're not stupid. So Sweden's like, oh, crap. Oh, ah, yeah, I bet it. Oh, what? Uh, no, uh, Nord Stream 2? Yeah. Ah, we'll get back with you on this one. <laughs> so what is alleged by Seymour Hirsch and I don't see with Seymour Hersh's track record how you could possibly not believe it. The guy goes on to talk about it. In early 2022, the CIA working group reported back to Sullivan's interagency group. We have a way to blow up the pipeline. What came next was stunning. On February 7th, less than three weeks before the seemingly inevitable Russian invasion of Ukraine, Biden met in his White House office with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who after some wobbling was now firmly on the American team. The plan was for options to be executed post-invasion and not advertised publicly. Biden simply didn't get it or ignored it. So they came up with an undercover plan. They're going to blow up Germany's pipeline. And then we're all going to keep our mouths shut. And, and Biden goes on air and says, yeah, we'll stop that pipeline. And I, the people that were involved were like, I cannot believe it. We had a plan to blow up the pipeline. We all know what we're doing is illegal. It's a crime. It's a violation of the Constitution. We all agreed to keep our mouths shut because we're all criminals. And and Germany's our ally. And we're claiming to the world how much we go by rules and international law. And this is clearly a, a, a violation of every international law you could ever imagine. And Joe Biden goes on TV and runs his mouth and spills the beans. That's what happened. Now, let me ask you this. Based on, sir, uh, 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 based on Seymour Hersh's background, do you think he's lying? Of course not. Joe Biden is a man right now that should be impeached. Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan, all of them should be marched out of their offices in handcuffs and locked up. Congress right now has a duty to do number one. They have a duty to start an impeachment investigation. And now we have evidence that the Biden administration, led by Joe Biden, led by Joe Biden and his top advisors, came up with a plan to intentionally, with malice and a forethought, violate United States law, violate the Constitution, violate international law, and criminally launch an act of war by their own terms, an act of war against an ally. This is Joe Biden, the man that told us, yeah, we got to um, fix uh, Trump screwed up our, our, our relationship with our allies and I'm going to fix them. That's how you're going to fix them. And here's the great irony. And it goes by what I've been saying. Anyway, NATO's a fraud. So how did they do it? Well, NATO was having an exercise in the Baltic Sea. And what and what was that exercise? This is an exercise with NATO ships. And what they're doing is they're going to say, well, if Russia attacks us this way, this is how we'll protect ourselves. So there was here to think about the irony. They're doing an exercise simulating an attack by Russia so they can protect Germany and all the other NATO countries from an attack by Russia. That's the exercise. They use that exercise as cover. So they could launch a military attack on Germany's pipeline. They literally used an exercise 
where they were faking that they were protecting Germany from Russia, they used that exercise as cover to attack Germany. The United States is a rogue state. And the government that we have is a rogue government. And how people can look at that and say they're better than the Republicans, at least it ain't Trump. They ain't better than nobody. If you're concerned about an assault on our Constitution and the president of the United States gets together with a group and that group says what we're about to do is an act of war against another country. And that would be a violation of the Constitution. Therefore, we got to find a way to hide it. That is a conspiracy to commit a crime. That is a conspiracy to commit a crime now. And we got solid evidence of it. I I find it amazing that Americans will just go, oh, okay, well, let's get back. Hey, I wonder what Joe Biden's going to do about fill in the blank. And coming up next on the show... Would you like to go on my personal payroll? How personal? Don't say I didn't warn you. All right. Now I'm going to give you a little warning. If you want to stay alive, don't buck Malone. Last time they only cracked your ribs. Next time they'll crack your head. Kid, I'm a, you've got to grow up sometime. Wait, let me go! And those were scenes from the 1959 Hollywood noir, Vice Raid in which Mamie Van Doren's Detroit hooker gets caught up with New York City mobsters. And Van Doren joins us on the show to talk about what she's been writing with her latest memoir and memories of Clark Gable, George Harrison, Jean Harlow, and growing up on a South Dakota family farm with no running water. Well, hello and welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. Okay. And what can you say about your latest book, China and Me, about that other man in your life who may be half a century old and your pet bird? Yeah, well, it's a it's a lifestyle style memoir about my life with a parrot. And uh, I've lived with a China for almost a half a century. And I lasted a lot longer with my bird than I did my uh, four husbands, you know. So <laughs> I feel very lucky about that. And uh, I'm now also writing another book uh, called Secrets of the Goddess. And that's in my definitive memoir. Uh, I did one in 1987 called Playing the Field. And uh, that's still on uh, Amazon. But uh, I thought what I would do is do something completely different. Uh, and uh, it talks. I talk about my life living on the farm and where I was raised in South Dakota with the animals and and no running water, no no electricity. So I I came. I was born in 1931, and uh, I am now staring down the barrel of 92. So when I say these things, I'm sure people say, "What? <laughs> what?" <laughs> Well, you seem the opposite, 29, not 92. But speaking of pets and of men as well, what are your memories of Clark Gable and starring as his girlfriend in Teacher's Pet? Oh, my God. Clark Gable was the epitome of uh, every man that I have ever met. He is just so sweet to me. And he was always my favorite. Never thought I'd ever dream of playing opposite him. And... uh, we got to know each other. Uh, uh, we, uh, when I met him, my first scene was a kissing scene. And, I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I'm 25, and he's like 59, but I, 
It didn't matter how old he was. He had a mustache, and I'd never kissed a guy with any hair on his uh, with any hair on his face. But uh, I ran. I kissed him and kissed him and kissed him ten times. I think we did that take, and I absolutely fell in love with him. And uh, and the scene was not put in the movie because it looked too. I looked too young. Mm. <laughs> I like he was robbing a cradle, you know, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> And um, when we were sitting at the table, I um, I told him that Carol Lombard was my favorite and Jean Harlow. Well, I was really the first platinum blonde he'd worked with since Harlow, and that was in the 50s, and she died in 37 or something like that. So I I felt like I wanted to tell him about it, and he said that we I reminded him very much of, uh, of both ladies, and of course he loved Carol Lombard, was his dearest. He never got over her. And... Uh, and he uh, had his martinis at 11 o'clock in the morning. He had a double martini every every morning. And uh, and he uh, one day surprised me. He said, Mamie, would you come into my dressing room? And I said, uh, oh, yeah, I'd love to, you know. So I went in his dressing room, and there were – he had pictures of me on the wall. Oh. And I thought, oh, my God, that's – that's really nice, and so he, uh, we uh, kissed a little bit, and uh, we a little little hanky panky. But uh, uh, my experience with Clark Gable were good memories, mm. good good memories, and a fine, wonderful actor. I mean, here I was in the arms of a man that had Vivian Lee, Lana Turner, every person that was a man, you know, Crawford, who was my one of my favorite actresses, and. I, I, I just feel very, very lucky to be, still be here and talk about it. And what can you say about referring to Canada as the U.S. enlightened Zen cousin because they have sensible gun laws and health care? Um, I, I, uh, <clears throat> politically, I didn't... <laughs> I haven't talked about politics on because I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very sensitive subject to me, so I probably better not say because uh, I, I, I just... I am so unhappy right now about things happening that uh, I, I better not even say. <laughs> and how is the relationship with China different with human males and the many males you've experienced in your life? China to a man? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> oh, man, that's a strange question. <laughs> well, there's a lot of difference. <laughs> um uh, they've got feathers, you know, <laughs> and they can fly. <laughs> a man can't do that unless he's in an airplane, right? Mm. So I, to compare the two, um, I tell you what, I would rather sometimes be with my bird. <laughs> and, uh, and what was that all about when an inebriated George Harrison threw a drink on you by mistake when he was intending to throw it on a reporter? Well, I was dating Johnny Rivers at the time at the Go-Go, and uh, he called me. He said, baby, come down here. The the Beatles are here. And I said, no, I'm going to bed. No, come on down. Come on. I want you to come down. So I said, okay, I got dressed. Went down, and uh, there they were in a booth. And I said, oh, so then Johnny was going to go over and introduce me to him. And then a cameraman comes along and tries to get a picture. Well, he got in front of me to get the picture of Harrison saying hello to me. And Harrison didn't want the cameraman there. So, and I didn't even know the cameraman was behind me. And all of a sudden, I get splashed with this drink. I just put a new dress on, and it went all over me. And I go, oh, I was I was really mad. And I, I ended up with Johnny Rivers at the end of the night. So what can I say? <laughs> and what do you feel is most misunderstood about you? Well, I've always been compared to... Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield, the three M's. It's a lot of BS. I'm not anything like either one of them. Um, I'm still here, and that's got to prove itself that you got to have a brain to be able to survive Hollywood. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Huh? Like I say, I survived South Dakota, and if you can survive those winter days and know with no electricity and water, you can survive any damn thing in the world. And uh, also, I proved that when I went to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam twice. And entertain our our warriors over there that there were forgotten men, and and women 
and uh, I'm going to be writing that in my new book, uh, uh, Secrets of the Goddess. I'm writing things that haven't been written, and I'm going to be telling everything. My rape that I had by a very famous person and that I've held in. I was going to put it in my other book, but uh, Putnam didn't want me to do it. And uh, now since it's been out, uh, I thought, well, this is the time to do it. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to tell everything about it and how horrible it is. And I lived with that, this for 92 years. And when they say it's nothing, it's not true. It never leaves you. And what can you say about the current campaign to get you a star on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And as the first woman to perform rock and roll on screen, Oh, yes. I did uh, two movies called Untamed Youth, and uh, and the other one was uh, Teacher's Pet. Uh, Ubala Baby was written by Eddie Cochran, who is in the Hall of Fame, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, it was a movie that I did my choreography. I did my own choreography, and uh, it was uh, about rock and roll. I was the first one to do a, a rock and roll on the big screen. And people couldn't believe it. I wasn't able to do a front bump. I couldn't wiggle my breasts. I couldn't do a lot of things. And I still managed to, to pull it off. And I, I think that since I was the first female movie star to perform rock and roll on yeah. the big screen, uh, uh, that would be nice if I could, I could be nominated and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everybody else has been, even uh-uh. Dolly Parton, Polly Parton, who did country, you know, she was in the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll. But I really believe that uh, I would just love to be in. Uh, I'd love to get one. In. I have my star on two two sidewalks, that one in Hollywood and one in Palm Springs. And uh, the one in Palm Springs is between Marlotta Dietrich and Marilyn Monroe, and I feel lucky to be there. So I've done quite a bit. <laughs> okay, well, Mamie Van Doren, thanks for calling in. Well, Prairie, thank you for inviting me, and uh, lots of success and love in the future for you. Great. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. And that was Mamie Van Doren talking about her latest memoir, China and Me. Express. By the time I got out of the army, I had a pretty good idea what was wrong. But then I started reading, and all those things convinced me I wasn't crazy. Peter Wise talks about his life journey from the U.S. military to Marxism. The political activist who has made his home along the Mississippi River in Iowa was a medic in the 82nd Airborne Division until seriously injured and turning to painting, mixed media, and as a photomontage artist for the past four decades. Here's Peter Wise. People probably wonder, well, how could you join the Army? Um, well, it, it was after Vietnam, and I'm not, I, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily believe militaries aren't necessary. They certainly are in uh, national emergencies. Um, the war had been over, and uh, I had some cockeyed idea to help organize within the army, uh, because at that time the the country of uh, the Netherlands had an army which was um, being challenged to uh, unionize, 
And I don't ever know what happened to that. Um, somehow I think it probably failed eventually. But in the United States, that would just be crazy. Uh, I found that pretty quickly. But the value of the Army for me, well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I did basic training at uh, Fort Dix, and then I went to medical training at uh, Fort Sam Houston in Texas, and later went to um, parachute school and was assigned the 82nd Airborne. This was good for me. I, I, I don't deny that uh, I had been aimless and moneyless for too long. And I, I quickly um, I, I learned some uh, from some wonderful training, medical stuff. And then I uh, became a clinical specialist uh, at the largest army hospital in the world at that time. So I divided my time between uh, field work and hospital work. And eventually I was transferred to Massachusetts. So it turned out that I got sent to Massachusetts and in a support company for special forces. And um, the same problems were there uh, and the same good things were there as well. However, um, it became clear to me that uh, toying with Nicaragua, invading, invading Panama, invading Granada, Honduras later, things started to fall in place in terms of how America had become an imperialist power. Uh, fortunately, I was in the hospital when uh, Granada was uh, invaded, and missed out on Panama when the 82nd had invaded that earlier, I believe. But like all things in life, um, you don't understand them right away, and as time accumulated, it became clear to me that uh, the racism the imperialism of the United States, which is cloaked in all sorts of euphemisms about building democracies, was just crap. I think it's like anything in life that as you mature, things start to fall together intellectually for you. You, you have widespread pieces of experience that gel and cohere. So by the time I got out of the army, I was injured seriously, uh, repelling. I had pretty clear idea what was wrong, but then I started reading Marx, Lenin, Stalin, and all these things from other people, other great people, France Fanon, people like that, convinced me I wasn't crazy that the, these injustices are still going on. In fact, they're getting worse as America tries to meddle in other people's affairs. And uh, so I started reading uh, a lot and then history. And I think, as a side note here, for young Marxists or anybody that's interested in anti-imperialism or reforming the United States or overturning it, whatever you want to say, that a knowledge of history, it just, it doesn't have to be a refined, thorough knowledge of history, but you need to have a knowledge of history so you can put these pieces together. And they are all related. Everything is tied together politically, economically, gender-wise. So I always recommend people, hey, read the Communist Manifesto. You'll probably get interested in it and read more thorough things. Marx was very loquacious, so was uh, Engels. Uh, Lenin was more concise, but in, um, just as important, uh, probably more important than the rest because he was more modern. Uh, saw some uh, imperialism and uh, how monopolies form and how the need for markets informs capitalism's voracious appetite to conquer or control other countries because they need markets for all the overproduction of consumer goods that they perform. This was the guy that was writing in the beginning of the 20th century, and it's only gotten worse. So I eventually, uh, I was in an ideal place to, to uh, join a radical organization, so I, I picked... Um, I picked the uh, Communist Party of the USA. I would say to people, everyone has an individual vision of what their ideology is. Um, you can loosely call people leftists. But the, the important thing to understand, I think, is for younger people just to read history, to understand that capitalism is the common cause of the whole Pandora's box of evils that we see in American and European society. White hegemony, for sure. Uh, 
that, that was one thing that took me a long time to understand. Uh, it's just as powerful and toxic as it always has been. These phenomena are controlled by economics, by capitalism, which is not an ideology. It's just the law of the jungle. I would say to younger people that unlike us, who were educated in capitalist apologies or rationale, the good war, the Vietnam War, all that stuff, uh, that it was all a matter of patriotism and pro-patria, that that's just bull. So it's Orwellian. I think people now should take everything as misinformation that uh, particularly the federal government puts out. It's all a lie. It's Orwellian. It's pervasive. It's the way things work. What you should do is read the history and then make a decision based on, oh, like Howard Zinn, great historian, and then choose what level of skepticism you want, but I'm sure you'll arrive at skepticism nonetheless. This isn't about conspiracy theory. This is about things that happened, and people don't know they happened. To prove that now, look at Florida. Look at the fascist government of Florida, which was trying to ban black history, and so far is successful, unfortunately. And these are the way fascist governments work. They take away awareness and replace it with totalitarianism. So I, I will remain a communist. I keep studying it. Um, I'm interested in Soviet art, for instance, or what they call socialist realism, which is poo-pooed and criticized for so long in the United States just because of its ideological content. And there is an argument to say, what is art? If it's political, well... That, that's an argument which we'll never cease. But it does speak to truth, and it speaks to events, which might be highly stylized, but yet they are. They did happen. I got interested in Dadaism because after the First World War, uh, European mentality was ripped apart uh, just as surely as the men on the battlefields were by the millions. And Dadaism, while it's an anarchistic sort of thing, Push comes to sub, you could call it a socialist or communist practice of art. Pretty nihilistic, but at least it lays the groundwork for objective thinking about history, unlike Thomas Kincaid, for instance. So these are, these are questions that go on and on with me. But the real point is the masses have to be served eventually. Capitalism will fall because it will run out of markets. It has too many contradictions. It, it can't claim to be good for the people or the masses. And eventually the world will get tired of American hegemony and somebody else is going to take over. I think that's, that's a given. You should always be skeptical, as I am these days. And it's actually kind of liberating to tell you the truth. And one more thing I might add is that any troubles I described among white people in the 60s and going on uh, in terms of imprisonment, uh, harassment, is next to nothing compared to what black people went through and still are going through. Black people started communism in the United States in Alabama in the 1930s with unionization. And uh, we as white people, I speak for myself, uh, owe that heritage, basically to black people. Take, for instance, uh, Joe Biden's uh, promises to railroad workers. And while we look at um, news of toxic fumes coming from wrecked locomotives or trains, we see the, the, the reality of these promises. And now uh, the Democratic administration has betrayed the union's because they want one day off per year for non-medical reasons. This is an insult to the unions, it's an insult to the people of America, and this is indicative of what happens with liberals. Uh, at least you know where conservatives stand, but uh, duplicity among the liberal elite in this, in this country is manifest. So that's just one example. So I remain, uh, 
pretty sure of my beliefs. I think they've been demonstrated historically. Yes, the communists all over the world have made mistakes. There's no doubt about it. But part of progress is recognizing mistakes and then moving on. Capitalism does not make any excuses for their barbaric treatment of indigenous peoples in Latin America, for instance, their barbaric treatment of blacks in the United States. And um, it's, it's really time to hop on board uh, before the world ends, I think. In that view, I would say, reconsider your position on Ukraine. There's a history behind this war and Nazism was never extinguished in that part of the world. It was only called something different. Okay, I, I guess that's all I have to say. I will welcome any questions, hopefully more pertinent than ones about my past, because I'm not very important. Uh, this is stuff I've witnessed, and there was a lot more going on back in the late 60s and 70s, so it can be covered here anyway. So anyway, I'm going to say so long for now, and uh, there you go. Bye. Show me prison, show me jail, show me a prison man whose face is growing pale, and I'll show you a young man with many reasons why, and there but for fortune may go you. Or I show me an alley, show me a train, show me a hobo who sleeps out in the rain, and I'll show you, young man, with many reasons why, and there but for. Fortune may go you or I. And coming up now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Today in our book corner, we're going to get a pre-publication look at an important new book that will come out in May, published by OR Books, called The Palestine Laboratory by Antony Lowenstein. In the book, Lowenstein explains how the Israeli military industrial complex uses the Palestinian territories as a testing ground for weaponry and surveillance technology that's then exported around the world I'm going to read an excerpt from the book, which deals with one relatively small but intriguing and undercovered aspect of this relationship. What happened when COVID-19 started to become a worldwide epidemic? So here now is an excerpt from the Palestine Laboratory by Anthony Lowenstein. The COVID-19 pandemic was the perfect opportunity for Israeli surveillance firms to attract business. Arresting the spread of the disease required effective contact tracing, and Israeli companies promoted themselves as the best in the world. By April 2020, only a few months after the disease started causing havoc globally, Israeli spyware company NSO Group was promoting itself as a savior to the international media. Then Israeli Defense Minister Naftali Bennett announced in March 2020, that the government was partnering with NSO to tackle the pandemic. Members of Unit 8200 helped out as well. In a display of its Fleming analytic software to the BBC, NSO showed how the system claimed to predict where the next infections might take place, when ventilators might be required in certain areas, and when areas could come out of lockdowns. NSO Group claimed that privacy of individuals, included the data used, was protected. 
But the London-based investigative organization Forensic Architecture, founded by Israeli architect Ayel Weitzman, reported in late 2020 that there was evidence that personal data used in testing from Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Rwanda was identifiable. Most of those countries had purchased and used MSO's spyware tool, Pegasus. A range of at least eight high-profile Israeli surveillance firms went about claiming that their spying technology could benefit states fighting a pandemic. Celebrite sells tools to governments and police forces around the world to hack mobile phones and offered its services, as did Rayzone Group, Cobweb's Technologies and Patterns. No country admitted to buying Israeli surveillance technology, but evidence pointed to a number of nations in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. The most honest comment about the company's real aim came from a former intelligence officer, Tal Dilian, based in Cyprus, and head of Intellexa, a cyber surveillance company working with intelligence agencies in Europe and Southeast Asia. After telling Reuters that his equipment to track COVID costs between U.S. 9 million and U.S. 16 million, he acknowledged that dealing with the pandemic was just the beginning of its useful capabilities, saying that Intellexa surveillance tools could fight espionage and aid security. Quote, we want to enable them to upgrade, unquote, he said. Israel's response to COVID-19 was unprecedented in the Western world. It used its internal security service, the Shin Bet, to track and monitor potential COVID cases, though it had been secretly collecting all mobile phone metadata since at least 2002, and follow social media posts for any evidence of social gatherings. There was an outcry among the Israeli media class and some politicians angered that a system designed to oppress Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem could be turned on Israeli Jews. Not that any of them said this outright, but the implication was clear. Do what you want to monitor Palestinians with the Shin Bet and make their lives hell, but do not use it on us. There is also silence about Israel's export of surveillance tools to regimes around the world, with many Israeli critics unable or unwilling to make the connection with the nation's COVID-19 response and the companies tasked to do it, having had years of experience selling these tools to dictatorships and democracies. When challenged in Israel's high court by the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, the Ministry of Health claimed that Shin Bet was more respectful of privacy than any private companies, including NSO Group, that were contracted to manage data. This irony was not lost on Palestinians, who lived under an oppressive regime of monitoring, torturing, targeting, harassment, and arrest every day in the occupied territories. Israeli human rights groups routinely challenged Shin Bet's operations during the pandemic, but its powers were rarely curtailed. It was an entity largely above the law. Quote, Millions of Israelis are now subject to the same Shin Bet-style monitoring, once reserved mainly for terrorist suspects, unquote, Haaretz, complained in April 2020 ignoring the fact that countless Palestinians under Shin Bet surveillance weren't terrorists at all. It was not long before the GPS tracking used by Shin Bet to fight COVID was turned on Palestinians. Countless Palestinians in East Jerusalem received text messages in May 2021 from Israeli intelligence claiming, quote, you were identified in violent acts in Al-Aqsa Mosque. We will charge you. We will settle the score, unquote. Shin Bet admitted in 2022 that it had also sent the messages to many Arabs with no connection to violence. 
Perhaps the only positive aspect of COVID in Israel was the awakening of some Israeli Jews to the oppressive state of Shin Bet monitoring, usually reserved for Palestinians. During the making of an Al Jazeera English film with UK filmmaker Dan Davis in 2021 on the threats to free speech and liberty during the pandemic, under the cover of COVID, we interviewed Or Biron, a Jewish resident in Tel Aviv who regularly protested then-Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. During one of the lockdowns, she met with fellow activists and a few days later was sent a text message from the government stating that she had been near someone with COVID and had to immediately isolate herself. I felt angry, Biron said. I had a feeling that because we were there meeting with activists, like many people from the protest, it happened getting told to isolate because of this event. It was impossible to be certain that Shin Bet was trying to disrupt protest against the government, but this happened to a number of other people as well. Because Shin Bet was both working to stop any opposition to the government and also tasked to protect citizens from COVID, the organization was given unprecedented powers to control the population and could act in complete darkness. For Or Biron, she told us that she believed that citizens had to fight Shin Bet interference in all areas. It doesn't matter if it happens to an Israeli citizen or someone in the occupied territories. This is a slippery slope towards violating human rights. From the beginning of the pandemic, Israel used its arsenal of surveillance capabilities and hired private firms to provide extra controlling services. Palestinians from the West Bank who resided in Israel and wanted to know if their work permits were still valid were told to download an app that allowed the army to track the person's location. Surveillance companies globally expressed excitement about the prospect of their services being used during the pandemic. Israeli corporations were at the front of the queue. Carbine, founded by former members of Israeli military intelligence, was promoted as a next-generation 911 emergency call service that requested a user's access to their mobile phone, access that then allowed use of its video and location services to better serve the individual. It was used during the pandemic to accurately locate COVID patients. The threats to privacy were obvious, but barely mentioned in most of the positive media around the product. It was backed by former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, billionaire investor Peter Thiel, and a small investment from now-deceased pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The Israeli firm Supercom was expert in electronic ankle monitors and sold its monitors to follow prisoners leaving jail in the U.S. It saw interest spike during COVID-19, with its advertising explicitly mentioning that its expertise on imprisoned or convicted individuals could be used to detect COVID-19 in the general population. Finland embraced the technology in 2021 when buying, quote, biometric offender monitoring technology, unquote. A fancy way to say GPS tracking. Supercom sold 30,000 electronic bracelets to Israel in 2021 to enforce quarantine restrictions. Decades of occupation thus made Israel ready for the COVID-19 challenge. Defense companies repurposed their systems in the service of helping the Jewish state tackle the pandemic. The Israeli Ministry of Defense published a document that listed all the major Israeli defense firms, including El Bit, an NSO group, and promoted them to other states as providing the ideal solution to address the various needs of authorities during times of emergency. In May 2020, Israel admitted that it aimed to expand its defense exports, specifically tracking civilians. 
aside from Iran, Syria, and Lebanon, every country on the planet was deemed fair game for sales. In the Israeli media, Elbit and Raphael Advanced Defense Systems spoke glowingly of their service in fighting the COVID pandemic, including the adaption of command and control systems and thermal cameras for missiles, and many in the Israeli press didn't ask questions. Israel converted a missile production facility to make ventilators. Israel's intelligence service, Mossad, was tasked to source essential medical equipment from around the globe. A story in Haaretz in April 2020 quoted Dr. Oren Kaspi, head of the Advanced Heart Failure Program at Rambam Medical Center in Haifa, who said, We're very good at the war sciences and war technology, and this is a war. We need to take the technologies we use in war and implement them on the medical battlefield. Nowhere in the story was it mentioned on whom these technologies were normally used. The Palestinians. And I've been reading by permission of the publisher O.R. Books from the galleys of the Palestine Laboratory by Antony Lowenstein. As we get closer to its official May publication date, we hope to do an interview with Antony Lowenstein. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.